What's up, everyone? Welcome to my corner of the internet. I'm your host, Ryan Kramer, and this is Crossover Commerce, presented by Ping Pong Payments, the leading global payments provider helping sellers keep more of their hard-earned money. Each episode on here will feature leaders in the digital space to help entrepreneurs grow their knowledge and understanding of the Amazon and e-commerce world. Let's get started. What's up, everyone? I'm your host, Ryan Kramer, and welcome to another episode of Crossover Commerce, episode 49, almost at the magical marker of 50. So that'll be tomorrow, clearly. But thanks for joining us again on Crossover Commerce, presented by Ping Pong Payments. Ping Pong provides marketplace sellers and entrepreneurs global solutions for controlling their domestic and international funds. An account with us enables companies to significantly reduce their cost when receiving or making international payments. All right, again, thanks for joining us live. If this is your first time watching us on either Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, or LinkedIn, welcome. Uh, it's great to have you on. Let us know you're watching us by hitting that like button or commenting below, just telling us where you're listening from. Or if you're listening to us later via download, we're going to be able to uh, see those comments as well, but you can listen to us on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you consume this podcast. But today, I'm really excited about our guest uh, that we have on today. A lot, it's the hot topic I want to talk about. Um, I'm always looking for different ways that people can stretch our thoughts and get nuggets in terms of where people can learn about the Amazon space. And I think the biggest, one of the biggest topics I should say that people love talking about is the purchasing or selling their business when you're an Amazon seller. It's a, it's a really, uh, and we'll go in more detail, but it's something that I feel like comes up almost once a day when I'm talking to customers or I'm talking to people in the space of how can I use this asset to get the most bang for my buck? Almost like a car or a home when you're selling that, you get um, money for that asset. So it didn't used to be that case, but now it's more of a forefront of these big roll-up companies and we have someone who's firsthand who sold uh, her business. Um, I'm going to say her business because uh, I don't know if it was with other people, but her business. And she actually talks about it on a podcast on helping people be more profitable in this space. So our guest today is actually um, Kellyanne Fadillo. She is an attorney that turned e-commerce entrepreneur and Amazon channel expert. She founded and scaled a seven-figure brand and then had a successful exit, meaning she sold her business, for those of you out there, uh, sold her brand that she built up on Amazon. She spent at least the last six years honing her craft, mastering the art of science that it takes to build brands and maximize sales on the Amazon channel. And she's been featured as a speaker in numerous podcasts. Again, add crossover commerce to this list and webinars, world-class e-commerce conferences such as Prosper Show, IRCE in Chicago, and Kelly has stays immersed in the latest Amazon strategies because she's obsessed with helping brands leverage and dominate this powerful yet ever-changing platform. I agree with you there, Kellyanne. Uh, she offers strategic counseling, working directly with brand owners on their exit strategy, optimizing and maximizing the value of their business before exit. She has a podcast called Amazing Ex Exits, which empowers Amazon entrepreneurs with best resources to scale and optimize their business and achieve their ideal exit. She also lives with her husband and two daughters, French Bulldog and Cat in California, and she loves and is obsessed with Peloton. Welcome to the show, Kellyanne Fadillo. Kellyanne, welcome uh, to Crossover Commerce. Hi, Ryan. Thank you so much for having me. Been looking forward to this, and what an intro. Thank you so much. I'm blushing over here. <laughs> <laughs> hey, those are your words that I just read. I That's it, right. This is, 
<laughs> but when I when I tell people about this, it's like when you write your own resume of what you've done, it, you just kind of are amazed. It's kind of cringy, right? It's cringy. It's like, oh my gosh, like, you know, I'm not it's all that, believe me. Well, and, and I think it's in the eye of the beholder, right? Because not everyone gets to do what we do in terms of like talk about our successes or helping people grow. But it's almost like you have to pump yourself up and say like, hey, I, I was successful at this and I'm not afraid to share it. So, um, but yeah, that, that's an amazing resume. It's really exciting for you to be able to help people, especially nowadays. I feel like it's the the hot topic, if you will, it to to discuss. Is. And so, so maybe um, if I didn't cover it, what was kind of that background like? You were an attorney, correct? What correct. what made that transition from attorney to Amazon seller? Well, it wasn't an immediate transition. This happened over several years because you know usually when you go into an advanced career, like you know being a doctor or a lawyer, you're kind of like. <laughs> you're kind of all in, you don't really think that you'll ever get out. So I still, to this day, I'm so grateful that I'm in e-commerce and that I'm in this industry that I gave up law because it was a really hard decision to leave behind after spending, you know, a lot of time, um, blood, sweat and tears, you know, going through law school, not to mention the expense, taking the California state bar exam, which is one of the hardest bar exams to pass, passing so time, going into a job market back then where it was very brutal. There were no jobs. There are so many attorneys in California. So I was able to get a really good job at a top civil litigation firm in Sacramento, which is where I practiced. And then, um, you know, along the way, got married and had my first daughter and something in me, just a light bulb went off. Like, I can't do this for the rest of my life. Like I was in shock with myself. Like I had to do so much soul searching I remember going on like trips with my girlfriends and just being like, what am I going to do? Like, I didn't even tell my husband at first what I was thinking. Cause it's like, Oh my God, like my whole identity <laughs> was being a lawyer. Right. Exactly. It was really, really tough. But, um, luckily, you know, after talking to my husband about it, you know, it took about a year, but finally we decided, okay, you know, I'm going to quit my job. Um, you know, he is amazing at what he does. He's in medical device sales, but back then he was in pharmaceutical sales. So, you know, we went from the two incomes to one, but he totally, I mean, it was like it never even happened. He just kept advancing in his career. And I'm so grateful for that. And I was able to really um, enjoy being a mother and also be able to think about what it would be like to be an entrepreneur. So that didn't come for me until later in life, being an entrepreneur. And I wish I could go back in time and say I've been an entrepreneur since the day I was born, but that's not my story. And also, I think being a lawyer and going through all that, you know, shaped who I am today. Certainly, there's a lot of skill sets that are very useful um, when you learn to be a lawyer, you know, being very analytical, being able to argue, being able to uh, draw a conclusion, make an analysis and draw a conclusion. All that stuff has helped me. And some of some of it has harmed me, too, because I can be kind of um, contentious and argumentative, which is <laughs> really not a good thing to do when you're <laughs> in um in any other field, really, it, it doesn't work too well. So um, I'm very grateful for the background, but it's definitely, that's my past life. And I like to say I'm a recovering attorney. <laughs> well, I think, <laughs> and, and that's why I tell people too, because uh, I was former sales, like I was always hitting the ground running and sales in its context, you're always selling something, you're selling yourself or an idea or a product. Um, and, and I think when you come and look at an attorney, an attorney's perspective, I think that yields well for you in terms of like, Hey, you have all these facts. It's not, it's, you have to make all these decisions based on facts, like analysis or data or any of this stuff. It's not a gut feeling. It's almost like a, 
you, you can't just like say, I'm going to be successful. And I think it's going to work out. You have an analytical mindset of, Hey, this is, this is what's going to yield in success for me. So I think that's probably why you were successful and early on. So tr that transition process, were you a uh, private label seller? Where, what, what kind of Amazon seller were you? Yeah. So I got involved with selling on Amazon in early, actually it's probably late 2013. And then um, I started my own private label brand in 2014. Um, and so the transition was basically, you know, I stopped working as a lawyer. I decided I want to be an entrepreneur. What the hell that meant? I didn't know. I knew that I wanted to do something that I could work from anywhere, something online. So I, you know, really um, investigated like every type of business model out there and never even considered e-commerce. I don't even think I knew what that word meant back then. Um, <laughs> and, and back then I, I would say I was an a Amazon shopper, but even back in 2013, I don't remember, like now it's like we get Amazon packages like daily. Like, I mean, I couldn't live without Amazon um, <laughs> as a customer. And so, um, you know, once you start joining all these different email lists, when you're looking at internet marketing opportunities and all this kind of stuff, I was on so many lists and luckily I got on Ryan Moran's list. I always credit him with, you know, my, my start and all of this, because at that time he was promoting a very popular, uh, how to sell on Amazon course called amazing selling machine. Right. And I was on that list and I remember like messaging him on Facebook, like, why should I like go with your group? Why should I join through you as, as opposed to another affiliate? And I remember, I don't remember the exact message he sent back, but something he said convinced me that I should choose him and his group, which back then was called the tribe. Um, to join him in the journey of learning how to sell on Amazon and create a brand and leverage the Amazon channel to launch and scale that brand. So that's what I did, launched in 2014 and, you know, pretty quickly grew to a seven figure business. Um, but then, you know, from that point, you know, growth is one thing, but scaling profitability or, or scaling profit profitably is a whole different thing. And so I would say that like three years into my business, I really started to focus on the, the bottom line versus that top line vanity metric. Interesting. So, so when you're starting out, what, what industry were you in? Were you in, um, as a private label seller, you were sports, selling sports and outdoors. I had a women's lifestyle brand. Okay. So, how many, how many different, uh, ASINs were you operating? Um, you know, total like parent child ASINs, it was probably about 14, but with all the variations and things, I probably had about 40, 40 SKUs. Wow. Mm -hmm. Okay. So 20, so women's lifestyle. So workout, is this like apparel or is this like, it equipment? wasn't apparel. I did, I did a wide variety of products. So everything from infusion water bottles to, um, you know, custom designed, um, like, uh, sling bags and waste packs, things to support women in their outdoor adventures. So I, that I like that. That's a, I hope that was your tagline because that sounds almost too good. My, to be the brand was called one savvy girl and now it has been re rebranded, um, by the new owner. So, um, you know, I don't know if I should disclose that, but yes, that's okay. You don't, you don't have to, if you, yeah. if you can't, or, uh, <laughs> if you, if you don't want to, lines, but I'm just not going to just to be on the safe side. Anybody could probably, figure it out if they wanted to go look up the brand. <laughs> right. So, so you did that. And how long did you operate your business? And you, you said like you started back in 2014. Is, it, is that yes, the I launched okay. August 2014. And then the, my business, the sale of my business closed February of 2020. So a little okay. under or I mean, little, you got out right before the pandemic. 
Yeah, like it, it closed right before. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. And that was like a complete coincidence. Um, you know, one that I'm I'm very grateful for. I mean, the new owner and his partners, I know that they, you know, weathered a lot of <laughs> turbulence, but they, you know, came out of 2020 doing well with, you know, growth from the, the prior year. So that's mm -hmm. awesome. But definitely, um, I'm very grateful I didn't have to go through all those challenges. So sure. when, so maybe, maybe a part, if you had to go through 2020, you think your brand would have been is that your opinion it would have been less profitable than what you currently sold it at if you rode the wave of 2020? Oh no, not necessarily. I would have, I would have figured it out. I would have pivoted. It just would have been very, very stressful. And you right. know, when you are, when you do decide that I, you, you're going to sell your business. I decided that a year prior to actually going to market with my business. So once you have that mindset, your, your day-to-day -day activities are all about optimizing your profitability and also making sure there's no big changes and then running the business at peak performance also while trying to sell it. And so that's where my mindset was. So if, if all of a sudden, you know, for whatever reason, the deal fell through and then I had to go through all of the COVID hell that all the other sellers had to go through, I think I probably would have lost my mind because that was my mindset. I was selling the business. It was, I did all this prep work to get it ready. Like if I had to go back and then deal with all of the COVID stuff, it probably would have, driven me crazy. <laughs> oh my God. I, and, and that was the thing is like people went through logistics. Uh, they oh, went yeah. through, uh, just Why profitability in general. Issues. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, all just my running all out of inventory. Yeah. 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 It, so, I mean, that, that's great for you in terms of that. So you, over the course of six years, you're building out this brand, you're, you're growing, you're optimizing it. The thing that stood out to me is you had to do this a year in advance to prep it for sale. What is that process like? So you're scaling it, you're being profitable, you're taking the profits, either reinvesting it in your inventory or yourself, and obviously making, you know, um, you know, paying out yourself so you can live a life as well. What did you have a team around you, or is it just yourself? What was that kind of scaling process like? Because I'm assuming you did the initial research and you're taking that 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 next step over the course of those six years. You're scaling it to a team, or is it just you this whole time? So I ran, I had a very small team. Um, so I basically had my customer service manager who, you know, handled a lot of other things. She was kind of like a Swiss army knife, um, but she did all the customer service, you know, responded to all the reviews, responded to refund requests, all of that kind of stuff. And then I had a very good friend who uh, served as my creative director. So she helped me with all of the product design and a lot of um, aesthetic and, and visual things for the brand. Um, and then pretty much I had a graphic designer that I actually kept him on retainer um, because he just was so good. I didn't want to lose him. Um, and um, that was pretty much it. And then, you know, along the way, I host, I would hire, you know, one off consultants. Like, for example, I went through a rebranding in 2017. So I hired a really good branding consultant to help me with that and redesign the website and all that kind of stuff. So it really was, I still really look at myself as I was a solopreneur with a small core team. It was a lean, mean machine. And I built it as a lifestyle business. I built it so that I would only have to work, you know, on the business, maybe 10 hours a week. And that's what it was like. That oh. wasn't like that in the beginning, of course. Right. But of course. The last couple years of, of running it, it was probably about 10 hours a week. And then I was really focused on, preparing the business for sale, educating myself on everything that goes into selling a business. I was very, very 
when I want to learn about a new topic, I just go all in. So I spent a lot of time educating myself. And that's where this whole idea came of, wow, like I've gained a lot of knowledge through this process and I want to help other sellers now be able to prepare for their exit. But the most important thing I've got to say about exiting is if you prepare your business as if you were going to sell it, you're going to have the most optimized, well-oiled machine. You're going to have a better business for it. So I truly believe that every seller should prepare for their exit. They should be proactive. They should be ready to sell their business at any time. But then that gives them options because then they have this well-oiled cash gushing machine. Hopefully it's systematized. Hopefully they're just working on the business, not working in it day to day. And they can do with it what they want. If they get a good offer or if they want to sell it, they can sell it. Or if they want to sell part of it, they can sell it. Or if they want to just keep running it, you know, have maybe somebody come in and, you know, like a CEO run it for them and they're off at the beach, they can do whatever they want. So that's really what I became passionate about during that whole process, because as I was preparing the business for sale, I considered, okay, what's going to be my next move? Am I going to start another brand? And for sure, I'm going to. I haven't yet, um, but I do enough consulting. To be determined, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, to be determined. I, I probably will buy a brand versus start one from scratch. Um, and I've been keeping my eyes open for that. And, and I do feel now very knowledgeable about how to actually buy or acquire a brand and what to look for. Um, but then also, you know, I've been, I've always been consulting with other sellers, you know, even since I got started, um, just whether it was just very casual mentoring, but then, you know, just kind of like one off consulting for people to help them with their business. And so I get to see, I have insight into a lot of different businesses. So that's what keeps me fresh and on the cutting edge, so to speak, of what's going on at Amazon, even though I don't, I'm not currently running my own brand. Yeah. I mean, all of that makes sense. So at what point was this, at what point did you determine, Hey, I want to sell this brand. I don't want to have to operate it as long as I do. Is it, is there a point in your business? You're like, it's either a not fun for me or B I've done everything I can. And I don't, you personally don't see a growth uh, in it. And you, that that's kind of where that mentality of selling comes in. What do you, what do you think is that point where sellers get to that moment in time? Well, well, let me add let me add a little bit of uh, additional options in there. Um, sure. Definitely, you should plan for your exit <laughs> at least a year before you're sick of it. I, I was right. never like, I was never sick of my business. Once you're sick of it, it's kind of too late because you're just going to be like, I got to get rid of this thing. I got to get out you're not going to get maximum value for your business if, if you're feeling that way. So um, for me, it wasn't that I didn't see growth opportunities. And in fact, it was quite the opposite. I, I saw huge growth opportunities, but I knew what I would have to put in place to realize those that growth potential. And that was going to be building out a full team, probably having an office space, expanding into retail and other channels and um, you know, completely systematizing the business, which I mean, I feel like it was pretty systematized, um, but all the things that I would have to do to get it to that next level um, was not something that I had in my heart and motivation prepared to do. So that's why I felt like, okay, it's time to take chips off the table in terms of all my money is tied up in this business. And if you're gonna grow these businesses, you have to reinvest it all. I mean, I'm sorry, but people who take a salary and that's great, but if you could reinvest that salary, the more you can reinvest, the, the more you're gonna be able to scale. And so I knew that, you know, with, you know, taking on debt financing in order to support the growth that I already had sustained, it was starting to weigh heavily on me, you know, thinking about, okay, like this Q4, if I don't sell through all this inventory and I've got, you know, $500,000 of 
of debt out there, you know, what's going to happen. And I, it was probably Q4 of 2000, I want to say 2017, that that kind of realization hit me that, you know, I need to start figuring out like, what is the long-term vision for this brand? Where do I see it? And that's what we teach now in, you know, our, with our podcast and with our intentional growth course is knowing what you want out of your business long-term and why is so important. And really, if you are a true business owner, you're going to have your exit strategy plan from day one. So most people don't, and that's okay, but we like to really educate people that you need to have that strategy and, and know what you want. And um, I'm also going to quote something from, um, I was on uh, Quiet Lights podcast, uh, Joe Valley, and he was on our podcast. <laughs> I've well. been emailing Joe all morning, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, he said something, I can't remember if it was when we interviewed him or I was on his podcast, but he said, um, sell your business before promoting yourself to a level of incompetence. And I love that because... I am not a, um, I don't yearn to have like a hundred employees under me and me managing them, right? Like that's not what I want. Um, I don't, don't want to have an office space. I don't want to have all these warehouses. I don't want to have this big, huge operation, global operation and have to be in charge of that. Like that's not what I wanted out of life. Um, I wanted a lifestyle business. So I felt like the best way for me to build wealth was to sell that business, take that money off the table and invest that in, in other assets. And that doesn't mean that having a business isn't a great asset to invest in, but it's obviously, it's an active, it's an active investment. It's not a passive investment. And I'm at the point in my life where I want to start getting more passive with Absolutely. my investments. <laughs> Absolutely. So when do you think like, I personally, because been in the e-commerce space since 2014 in various capacities, know that this, this is something that a lot of people didn't think it could happen. Do you think it's just for lack of education that you can sell a brand on Amazon? Or do you think it's just because of, for lack of a better term, roll-up companies are kind of tra trailblazing this way, is bringing light to, hey, we can sell a brand or you can build a business on Amazon and you actually have an asset at your disposal, not just like a listing that you're just randomly selling a product on. At what point did it become a, your, your private label become an asset instead of, you know, uh, back then versus where it is now where everyone's like, all right, I'm going to sell. And this is my, my plan moving forward. When did that yeah. become incorporated? That that's a great question. And I'm going to go off on a soapbox a little bit here about how, do. <laughs> how important it is to, to have a sellable asset. You have to have a brand. Okay. Right. So I'm going to speak really quickly to other types of models like resale or wholesale. Are those business sellable? Yes. Are they difficult to sell? Yes. You've got to have some kind of a unique, um, you know, relationships, um, exclusive relationships, things to make that a tangible asset. Whereas a private label brand is an asset. So I knew from probably the, the first year I was in business, I was throwing spaghetti against the wall. I was very product focused. You know, I tried to kind of keep it in the same kind of vertical, but it was really all over the place. So it's really once I got to probably year two and then most importantly, year three of running my business that I really focused on the branding aspect of it. And that's why I spent the money and the time to rebrand. And um, I really felt like I came out of that with a really solid brand. Now, granted, it was still doing 99% of its sales on Amazon. Um, and I, I did spend a year trying to go off channel, trying to build, you know, an audience, trying to uh, do Facebook marketing, build an email list, all of that. And I 
failed miserably at all of those things. That wasn't my skill set. And I, I did try hiring different consultants and agencies to help me, but I didn't really ever find the right ones that did it. And so then I really came to the realization, you know what, I have developed a skill set on how to leverage the Amazon channel and use that to launch and scale my brand. That's what I'm going to stick with. So on our podcast all the time, we talk about don't take your eye off the golden goose. Like selling on Amazon is a completely different business model than selling on your own e-commerce site or selling into retail or selling, you know, on other channels. So mm -hmm. um, and, and I would recommend just anybody, unless you're at least at a million dollars in revenue, don't even bother, like stick with Amazon. So getting back to your question about like having just an Amazon business be a sellable asset um, just a couple years ago, it wasn't like if you were just on Amazon, you were, you know, a one trick pony, you were, you know, a two legged stool. It was very precarious. Um, if you were to go out there in the non Amazon aggregator business buying world, you know, it it really does you a disservice to not be diversified. You need to diversify your sales channels and not just be on Amazon. But as we know, 2020, um, we like to call it the rise of the aggregators or the gators. <laughs> and now there is, there are billions of dollars that have been invested from private equity, venture capital into these aggregators to buy up Amazon brands. And they're looking specifically for you know, the most of the revenue having been generated on Amazon. So 85% plus on Amazon. Um, but just to be clear, the aggregators are just one potential buyer. There, there's other types of buyers and acquirers out there. And depend, depending on your goals and how big your business is and the level of revenue and profitability you have, there's a lot of other buying options besides the aggregators. But all we hear about right now are the aggregators, right? Mm -hmm. Starting with Thrasio and probably as of right now, internationally, there's probably at least 100 of them. Um, a lot of them are going to fail. Um, a lot of them just have M&A or mergers and acquisitions, you know, investment banking background. They don't have operational prowess and background, so they don't know how to operate these brands at scale. So it's going to be really interesting to see what happens over these next couple of years with these aggregators and see which ones survive and thrive and which ones, you know, crumble. <laughs> I guess I have a two part question. Do you think it's a good thing that these these companies are existing for uh, Amazon sellers or just as an Amazon community in general, do you think it's a good thing that they're getting all this investment and that all these are popping up? Is that a, is that a good I, thing for I, the industry? I mean, it's, it, I would say, yes, it's a good thing to me. It's just capitalism, you know, at work. And, and that's, you know, I believe in capitalism. So I believe that that's the way things should work. Um, I think that I do think it's going to get harder and harder as you know, the next few years go by to just start a brand on Amazon, you know, with, two or $3,000 and grow it into something huge because now you have all these big players in the space who are consolidating all these brands. And some of them are going to figure out how to operate them at an expert level at scale. And so it's going to be really hard to compete with them. And then who knows what the next wave will be like, who's going to buy up all these uh, aggregators, you know, are they going to, you know, are they going to sell to Thrasio? Perhaps Amazon will buy them. Um, perhaps private equity will come in directly and start, you know, buying them up in a bigger way. It's really exciting to see. So I think that there is a, I don't want to say finite opportunity, but there's a huge opportunity right now to sell your business for a big payday and to sell it for maximum value. And I think that that should be taken very seriously by all sellers. It doesn't mean you need to sell today or tomorrow, but really look over the next year or two and prepare your business as if it were for sale. Go out and shop it out and see 
you know, what you can get for it, get a valuation and see if that if that meets your financial goals, then you should really seriously consider selling, in my opinion, because, um, you know, it's like, don't look a gift horse in the mouth. Right. You've got a valuable asset here and it's worth a lot of money and people are willing to pay a lot of money for it. And it's, you know, at least over this next year, I see the multiples going up because there's just so much demand. Um, and, you know, I've done consulting and, and work closely with some of the aggregators themselves. And I know what they're looking for. I know their criteria. Um, you know, they all have their different nuances, but at the end of the day, they want to see, you know, good profitable brands that have longevity that are primarily selling on Amazon. Yeah. Love that. Do you think, so I guess my part two of that would be, is there a lot of them are on .com or a lot of people are on .com. Where does the international component come in? Because a lot of sellers, you know, I think that if they're buying brands, they're successful on .com with a growth of international marketplaces like, uh, you know, Germany and UK are pretty popular, like growing quite substantially. There's more marketplaces coming into existence. Is there just as good of an opportunity for brands who are either starting internationally or are international, not just on .com? Do you, think that, do you think that's the next tier of like the valuation of companies if you are international? Like that would take your brain to a whole nother financial like payout level, if that makes sense. Well, there's two things. So interestingly, you mentioned this because yesterday I connected with um, a guy named Ben Leonard and he's an influencer. He is um, an international seller. He's from Scotland, actually. And he started a brokerage helping, you know, Amazon UK and Amazon EU businesses sell and their, their whole business is based there. Okay. And so there's been a lot of aggregators that have been popping up lately that are located internationally, like in Germany. So they're looking for both .com and you know, EU, UK businesses. But in terms of increasing the value of your business, I would say that that is probably the quickest growth lever for either you to do it yourself or to present as a growth opportunity for a buyer are the international marketplaces. So hopefully that answers your question. Yeah, I think so too. Um, when so as a brand to you, you said like, let's, let's work on timeline too. Why, uh, why a year? Why is it, why is it a year important for sellers that are thinking about building this brand? Why is a year have to be uh, a year out? I should say. Why it is doesn't that have to be, it doesn't have oh, to okay. be, it okay. doesn't have to be a year out. My, I, I, I always advise our clients that, you know, the best time to start your exit planning is the day you start your business. The second best time is now <laughs> if you haven't. Right. And I like to tell sellers to plan at least a year in advance because when a potential acquirer is going to buy your business, they are going to be mostly focused on what's called your trailing 12 months of profits or your earnings. And that is the critical time period that they're looking at. Sure. They're going to look at the historical you know, numbers of your business and how you've performed historically. So if you started your business in 2014, they're going to look at those prior years, but the most important time period they're going to be looking at is the trailing 12 months. And so for that 12 months, you want to make sure you're doing everything possible to optimize your profitability, to make your earnings basically as big as possible. That means you're not launching new products. That means you're not in scale mode. This means, you know, profit optimization mode. So it's very important. And, um, you know, that's that's not to say that, um, you know, taking more time to plan isn't a good thing. And it's not to say that you could do it in less time. Um, if, you know, a lot of sellers, as we know, 
had record years last year in 2020. So they should be considering, you know, even if they haven't considered it before, if they had, you know, a, a huge growth, um, you know, uh, bump from 2020 over 2019, then they should be considering selling too, because you just don't know what the future holds. If once you, once you're on the decline or hit a plateau, um, your business becomes unsellable or it becomes very difficult to sell. And certainly you're not going to sell it for maximum value. Do aggregators take 2020 into consideration when in terms of like, Hey, it's almost like a fluke year, or yeah. is that something that it has so much weight in the opposite effect where it's like, Hey, that doesn't mean that you were, you would have been profitable. It just happens to be that you were profitable, it, almost like a discounted year. Yeah, if, if that makes exactly, sense. Exactly. Exactly. That's what I've seen is that they're, they're applying some sort of a discount factor to it, you know, or calling it like a COVID bump, you know, for people that saw bumps, but it's, it's really the longevity of that bump. I mean, you know, things, you know, really hit the fan in March of 2020. Right. And then, mm -hmm. Um, you know, throughout the year, especially now coming into 2021, you know, they might need to see a little bit more history to see, I mean, how much they're going to discount that, that COVID bump. But I think as a seller, you just need to make, be able to make the argument. And this all goes into your multiple valuation. I mean, your, your, your profit is your profit is your profit. So in terms of the multiple that's going to be applied. And again, right now we're just talking about the aggregators. Remember, there's a lot of other types of buyers out there, not just aggregators. But if we're talking about selling your business to an aggregator, which is the hot topic, um, then um, you know you want to make an argument about why this this niche has you know longevity, how it's not just a seasonal thing or a COVID thing, um, you know, low fad risk, all of that kind of stuff. Absolutely. So when you're selling, is there is there a couple tips that you can maybe Maybe you didn't go through this, but say, I wish I would have done dot, dot, dot mm -hmm. when I was selling my business because either you left money on the table um, or, you know, you just kind of had to navigate blindly. I mean, you're an attorney, so you know more of the legal side of aspects. I feel like a lot of people don't know the legal ramifications of like all these things you need to do to like what you're giving up when you're selling a brand. What are those what ifs? I wish I would have known this uh, topics mm. that you would have known. You know, I... <laughs> I like to think that, I mean, I really, really did my homework, like probably for a year before I even went to market, I was researching everything I could about how to sell a business. So I was very well prepared and knew what to expect. But the biggest takeaway that I could say I have out of all of it, and the reason why my, my partner, Paul Miller, and I started the podcast and started this movement to help sellers is you just, you need the right team around you. It's, it's not a one man show. You need to have a team. So you need to have a good mergers and acquisitions attorney, pr preferably one that knows e-commerce transactions. And there are, you know, lots of them out there. Um, you want to have a good tax um, advisor, whether that's, you know, this is not your everyday, your uncle Bob doing your, you know, accounting, you need somebody who understands mergers and acquisitions, um, knows how to advise you on tax strategy and tax mitigation. Um, and sometimes that, you know, it depends on the level of your business, but sometimes that means hiring an actual tax attorney. Um, you want to have a good intermediary representing you usually, um, when you go to sell your business. So that would either be a business broker or a, um, investment banking firm or a mergers and acquisitions firm. Um, you would also want to have probably a wealth advisor to help you figure out like what to do with your proceeds, you know, how to um, best invest those, how to best mitigate taxes, all that kind of stuff. And then Paul and I are here to kind of help you with all of that, put that all together. Take and that picture. <laughs> so we call ourselves exit advisors. We are not brokers. We are not, you know, 
investment bankers, we are not brokering the transaction. We are helping sellers um, that aren't quite ready to sell yet. Maybe they're two years out. We're helping them to scale um, and, and put strategies in place to scale. And then we're also helping them with all of the exit planning and resources that they're going to need to have this dream team of experts um, so that they are educated and they do know exactly what they're doing and so that they won't leave money on the table. Absolutely. What about, and I don't know if this is a question that you can answer. If you're an international seller and you like live, for example, in China, mm -hmm. is there going to be different rules and regulations that you have to go through selling your business if you're in a different country rather than if you're located physically or your business is located in the United States? It depends if they have a U.S. entity or not. If they have a U.S. entity, then it should be fine. Um, again, I'm not a mergers acquisitions attorney. Right. I, I mean, I hired my own attorney. And even if I was still practicing law right now, I mean, I'm still an attorney. I'm just an active. Um, that's not my specialty. I was a litigator. So I would recommend that you always have an attorney deal with that. But yeah, it's, it's my understanding that as long as you have a U.S. entity, because what usually these these um, transactions are um, asset sales, they're not stock sales. So you're not selling the actual company, you're selling the asset. So if the brand is you know owned by an LLC, a U.S. LLC, you're just selling the brand out of that LLC. So as long as they've got that U.S. entity to sell it from, that should be fine. What are other things that might bring additional value to a brand? Is it patents? Is it what are the what are the other like multipliers that would make a business more, you know, cost cost friendly for yeah. when you're selling your business? Yeah, I mean, there are a ton of things. And the the trick is knowing your business and knowing which levers to pull because you can't work on all of them. So um, like you said, um, having um, IP, having trademarks, patents, any kind of a moat, any kind of product uniqueness, product differentiators obviously helps in terms of, you know, arguing for a higher multiple. Having, you know, first and foremost, you have to have clean financials, clean records, clean bookkeeping. Hopefully you have budgets, forecasts, KPIs that you can show. Um, you want to have, um, you know, streamlined supply chain. So if you have, you know, um, agreements with your manufacturers, if you have hopefully a supply chain manager of one point of contact, um, the more systematized your business, the higher value you can receive. Um, you know, nobody wants to buy a job. And so you know, with, the, with the aggregators, you know, there's a little slack there because they have their own operational systems. So that's not as important. Um, and those are just to name a few that the most important thing that's going to go into the value of your business is your earnings. How much earnings or cash flow is this business generating? And then some a multiple is going to be applied to that. And right now, you know, over the past year, you know, especially with the aggregators, we've been seeing multiples in the two to four range. Right. Um, so all the factors that go into what that multiple is, it all has to do with risk. The more risk that a buyer can justify or rationalize to you to themselves the lower the multiple is going to be so um, to put it another way you want to make sure that the cash flow that your business is producing is sustainable predictable and transferable the more that you can show that the higher your multiple will be so some of the things i already mentioned you know ip um, supply chain streamlined supply chain um, you know not going out of stock um, low fad risk, you know, low seasonality. Um, you know, you want to be able to show if you could show recurring revenue, you know, that's going to make it a less risky thing. So the less risk you show as a seller, the more it's going to be worth to the buyer. Does that make sense? Yep. That makes sense to me. Um, and obviously I actually had a comment I was going to show you. So Yoni, who is a friend of the show, ah, obviously, Yoni. 
Yeah, he was on our show yesterday and he was talking yes. about when I was going through our list, he goes, Oh, tell Kellyanne she she knows what's up. So uh, I was like, Okay, wait. <laughs> but yeah, he he's been fantastic in turn in show obviously infrastructure and whatnot. Um I have a question in terms of is it is it stickier in terms of when you have partners in play or if you have like entities that operate under you, if you have like employees, how does that transition work when you're selling a business? Is it, you have to let those employees go? Or are they still technically under this umbrella that they would work for this new company? How does that work on an employee level? If you have like VAs or if you have, um, you know, people that you're employing as a brand, how does that work when an acquisition happens? This is all something that is negotiated. And so this goes back to what I mentioned earlier about intentional growth, knowing what you want long-term from your business and why. So as the owner, if selling your business, if it's important to you, if one of your values is that my employees are going to be taken care of and that they are going to continue on with a role with this company, then that is something as a seller that you know is one of your non-negotiables when it comes time to selling the business so that you would write that into the purchase agreement um, that the employees are going to stay on. Um, and, and that does come up. I mean, with people with big teams, the employees are very important and you want to make sure that they're taken care of. Now, the buyer might say, well, we have our own team. We don't want them. And then that might kill the deal. Right. But it's all about you as the seller knowing exactly what you want out of your you know, liquidity event, your exit. And if that's something that you want, then you should stick to it and make sure it happens. Absolutely. And, and is that coming come, uh, compensation comes in forms like either buyout or they continue their job. Those are kinds of the two options, right? They either continue to stay on and operate as, you know, moving forward, or if they're going to say, we have our own team, you know, there's this lump sum payout. Is that traditionally what I happens? haven't seen, I haven't seen that happen, especially with the aggregators, like the aggregators probably aren't even going to come to the table on. And I'm just saying this generally, I mean, there's like a hundred plus aggregators out there. They're all different. They all have different ways that they work. Um, but I, I haven't really seen too much of that of a buyout. Um, but you know, it definitely is something you can use as a negotiating lever as far as, okay, if they're not going to keep the employees, then, you know, I want, you know, this much higher in my purchase price because I need to at least give them severance packages or whatever. So that's certainly something you can negotiate. What's the most interesting thing that you've seen that's killed a deal? Um, either working <laughs> with people or if you've heard as a story. Oh my gosh, that's a good question. Um, so I have, I have a, I can't reveal any details or names. Um, but I was working on a deal with, um, a very good friend, somebody who I'd known for a really long time. And, um, I actually went through the process of helping her to get a valuation and an offer from an aggregator that I was consulting for. Um, and I, I made it very clear the whole time that, you know, this is, you know, I, we want to make you an offer because you've got a great business, but like, go get an attorney, go shop this around. And so we made her an offer. And at the time, her books were not clean. Um, I had to do a lot of the bookkeeping and <laughs> accounting to kind of figure out where her EBITDA was. Um, and also gave her the information like, okay, if you want to go to a bookkeeper to get this all cleaned up, she was on cash method of accounting, it wasn't accrual. So I was only able to base our valuation on, you know, the, the numbers that she had at that time. Um, so fast forward a little bit after that valuation, um, she did retain an attorney that I recommended 
And the attorney, I don't know, but I think it, it I think he was able to get her some accounting advice. And so they were able to get their numbers on an accrual basis. And it basically made her profitability much higher. And so that goes to show you if you have clean books and records, right, then that's going to be able to show a higher profit. But the problem is, is that once that doubt is instilled in a, in a buyer initially with, you know, because somebody's not keeping good records and not keeping clean books, it's really hard to overcome that. So anyway, um, she ended up um, not accepting our LOI um, and going off and accepting another deal. And as far as I know, she got a higher valuation, which that's awesome. I'm so happy for her. But um, I would say that not having the, the clean books and clean records and not being prepared um, was the biggest is the biggest mistake. Like, don't go to sell your business to one of these aggregators if you don't have your ducks in a row. Like, you definitely want to be ready because they they are sophisticated. They are I'm not going to say take advantage, but you need to be able to play ball and know what you're doing. Exactly. And that, I think that's almost a scary notion to a lot of people is, you know, just the education component in general, which I'm assuming is what you and your partner, is it Paul, you said? Yes, um, yeah, you and Paul are trying to like shine light on it because mm -hmm. it's 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 almost not fad. Again, it's a, a lot of people are looking into seriously uh, doing that. Um, what's kind of the most exciting thing do you, that you think as a seller about selling your business apart from the money or like this asset that you're going to be selling is being transitioned to something else and you get a paycheck for it. What is yeah. the most exciting thing in terms of the process for you? Well, you know, I could only speak to my experience. Um, there's more to life than money, right? But having the financial security of that money in the bank versus it always being tied up in your inventory, that allowed me the freedom to really explore, okay, what do I want to do in the next chapter of my life as an entrepreneur? And I'll never stop being an entrepreneur. I'll never stop working as an entrepreneur. I'm always going to be doing something. But when you have that peace of mind of, okay, now I've got like chips off the table. It's not all at risk. Um, it really is a freeing, liberating feeling. I call it getting off the hamster wheel. Um, and it's not to say I wouldn't do it all over again, but now I can attack it with a much different you know frame of mind and kind of just this this solace that i have that you know i can kind of do anything i want and it's not all at risk in this one investment because because that's all it is when you're working in a business it's an investment and what you're selling is the cash flow that's what somebody's buying is the cash flow of this business and the um there's a risk to that you know if you keep if you keep your cash flow in there and and keep taking it out or not reinvesting it or even not sell it when you're at a high point, your business might decline and then you can't sell it. And then, you know, you're not going to be able to have that financial security. So, Absolutely. And, that, and that's what we all want. We want people to be successful. And the reason why they get into it to get those goals achieved and whatnot. So Kelly, what is the best way if people, and we're coming up to the top of the hour for people who want to learn more information or just kind of like, get those tips and tricks, maybe like ask you for opinions or just learn more information about you and amazing exits. What's the best way to do that? Sure. Well, I would recommend first that you go to amazingexits.com and we have a free assessment. It's called the freedom score. And if you, it probably takes about 10 minutes. I suggest that anybody go through that exercise. And of course, with that, you'll get on our email list, but we barely email people like we really, Paul and I have done like the worst job at marketing. Like we're just kind of networking and getting the word out there through kind of guerrilla marketing and word of mouth, which has been great. But like, we're not going to 
you know, inundate you with emails. Um, you know, we have a few options available on our website. We have our, our intentional growth course, which was produced by a very good friend of ours named Ryan Tansom. Um, but Paul and I have gone through the course and we believe, and you know, we coach on the course. We believe it's the best education out there if you really want to get a PhD um, on exit planning. Um, and um, then we do strategy sessions. We do implementation sessions. It's just an hourly thing. But really what we're looking to do is to help you along your journey help you to find all the resources, help you build your team and refer you to a bunch of options. And ultimately you're gonna pick an option that's best for you, whether it's an aggregator or using a broker to sell to, let's say an acquisition entrepreneur, whatever it is. And we just wanna be there as your trusted guide along the journey. And um, that's really what we're focused on. And uh, we love it, it's awesome. Yeah, well, you guys are doing a great job. I know I've heard of multiple things and heard a couple episodes myself. Fantastic in terms of the content you're bringing to listeners and also like helping people take that next step. Well, I, I want to thank you for just being a guest on my show. I know we did this all without meeting each other, like virtually over the show. We're just like, hey, let's go. Yeah. <laughs> let's start talking. So I like it. That's that's the beauty of like this show uh, that I've been able to do with people is like we just hit hit the ground running and almost like we're learning as we go uh, about each other and about the industry. So I appreciate your time today, um, but you can stick right there and we'll, we'll catch up unless you have to get going. No, I'm, I'm here. Thank you so much for having me, Ryan. This has been so much fun. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. And then for everyone, again, if you're watching this on both either Facebook or YouTube, LinkedIn or Twitter, thank you so much again for joining us today. This is Crossover Commerce episode 49. We're talking about the journey of growing, starting, growing, and then exiting your seven-figure e-commerce business. We're going live every day this week, especially uh, the next couple of days, obviously Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday this week. We go live on these channels almost every single day during the week to bring you nuggets of knowledge to grow your e-commerce and Amazon business. Uh, this week, we have a lot of great guests coming up. I was just looking at my list of new ones. We have February completely booked out. I'm trying to squeeze in as many people as possible to bring value to you listeners um, as either on our podcast or on our live sessions. But uh, tomorrow, we're actually going to be talking with uh, David Nicolici of Growth Hack Consulting. We're going to be talking about ways to launch your products and to uh, rank them, especially in 2021. There's so many different loopholes uh, that you're trying to avoid, making sure you don't get yourself banned on Amazon. He has great tips and tricks that he wants to share with our listeners. And then later this week, we also have Nate Ginsberg from Sellerplex. And we'll also end our week uh, with a great look at a seller spotlight. I'm trying to get more sellers on about their success and their journeys and their stories about growing on Amazon. We have Christina from Copy by Christina. She's been fantastic in terms of was former flight attendant, turned to Amazon seller and just her journey through 2020. Of course, as you can imagine, the, the travel industry kind of took itself off the table for her. So she had to find other ways to bring an income, been successful, I believe six or seven figure sellers her not, she's going to share her story and then also her um, her service that she's providing for Amazon sellers, how she's trying to help people grow. So packed, action-packed week. Uh, we appreciate all of you who listen every single day. For those who comment, make sure you subscribe to our channels on social media on Ping Pong Payments. Again, you can also find me, this uh, Ryan Kramer, on LinkedIn, Facebook, uh, Instagram, or Twitter. Go ahead and give us a subscribe. All the assets that we talked about today for Kellyanne and her team are in the comment sections below. So go ahead and check those out. And then later on, um, when we release this as a podcast as well, we'll be in the descriptions. 
Again, I'm Ryan Kramer for Ping Pong Payments and your host of this show, Crossover Commerce. Thanks for joining us again live. We'll catch you guys again tomorrow.